Welkom by SL Gemeente Media. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And then to a short passage from the the letter from James, James chapter 1. I'll begin reading with verse 5 there. James writes and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. Well, it's really a lot of fun to uh, be back again after a uh, not terribly long time. And you might remember when I was here before, I kind of scared a lot of people in talking about a cancer that is going through the body of Christ. I don't know if many people thought that maybe this was like Chernobyl and there's a radioactive cloud that was coming over again. Uh, But if you recall, I said that this cancer that's in the body of Christ is what we call unbelief. Unbelief. And unbelief is deadly. It is as deadly as pancreatic cancer. Uh, It is completely debilitating for the body of Christ and for our lives as Christians. If we have unbelief in our hearts, we will be absolutely ineffective for the kingdom of God. Uh, We will make no difference in in the marketplace or very little difference. We will make no impact in our families and in our communities. Uh, We are virtually useless because unbelief is not just the absence of belief. But unbelief is actually a negative faith. It is against belief. It is actually believing against the things of God. 
believing contrary to what God says in His Word. And just as unbelief was debilitating when Jesus was at Nazareth, so that uh, he could do no mighty works there. Now, whether you, you interpret that to mean that he wouldn't do it or that he couldn't do it actually doesn't make any difference. The effect was the same. There were no mighty works done in Nazareth by Jesus because of the unbelief. And he marveled at that unbelief. Uh, and that is something that we have to address and have to get out of our lives. Uh, and we do that through faith and through believing. Obviously, it's the opposite. But today I want to talk about uh, another thing that oftentimes is confused with unbelief, but it really is quite different. Uh, In fact, God hates unbelief. He despises it completely. But about this second thing, he tells us in Jude uh, Jude verse 22 that we are to deal mercifully with people who have this condition. We are to deal mercifully with people who have this condition, not attack them, not cast them out, uh, not go after them, but deal mercifully with them. And this other condition is a condition we call doubt. Doubt. Now, doubt in the Bible comes in two forms. Comes in two forms. Uh, The first form is what I call wavering doubt. Wavering doubt. And wavering doubt is what happened to Peter when he was walking on the water. You remember the story? Jesus had come to them in the night. He was walking on the water. There was a bit of a storm. Peter said, hey, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come and walk on the water. Jesus says, okay, Peter, come on out, walk on the water. Jumps out of the boat, you know, gets a little uh, spray on the other disciples, you know, kind of teasing them a bit, starts walking across there. Then all of a sudden looks at the waves, looks at what hap- what's happening around him and begins to sink. He begins to go down. And what did Jesus do when he, when he picked them up? You know, he didn't say, oh, you have so much unbelief in your life. You filthy creature, you. He, he looks at Peter and kind of laughingly says, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And the literal translation there is, why did you waver? This wavering doubt is what happens to us when we're in the middle of doing something for God. Most of us have encountered this. Uh, maybe we're starting to share our faith with our coworker, and then all of a sudden we begin to think, "Oh, should I really be doing this? Is this really the right? Oh, I don't know what it." Or, or maybe you're praying for somebody to be, to be healed, and you start praying for them, and you start out real boldly, and then you know you start thinking, "Oh, what am I doing?" You know, do I, oh, I, I, what am I up to here? And it's this doubt that comes into our minds when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing for the Lord. And the way you overcome wavering doubt, by the way, is by focusing on Jesus again. Refocusing on Jesus helps us to overcome this wavering doubt all the time. But that's not the kind of doubt that I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the second kind of doubt, which I call soulish doubt soulish doubt. But before I get onto that, I also want to draw one other distinction, and that is between doubts and questions. Between doubts and questions. They're not necessarily the same thing. If we have an honest question for the Lord, that's not doubt. That's asking an honest question. In other words, there are a lot of people that struggle with the question, for instance, why is there suffering in the world? And we ask ourselves this question. Maybe our coworkers ask, ask us this question. Well, if God is good, why, are, why is there so much suffering in the world? 
And there are many people who are asking this question because they're really struggling to know the answer. They really want to know the answer. They, they, they don't want us to give them a sermon or anything. They just want to, want to discuss it with us. Or many times it, it might come up in your own life. Boy, this, this passage of the Bible, does this really mean what God says here? And then you have to ask yourself and you wrestle with this. And, and God is not opposed to our questions. In fact, God is big enough to deal with our questions. God is not afraid of our questions. Uh, and I, I think we're, it's okay for us to ask God questions. To ask God the question and not be surprised when God answers. I mean, Job was asking a lot of questions and he got an answer that was probably a bit overwhelming for him. But he still asked the question. He still asked the question. And that's not doubt, not necessarily. Soulish doubt is something different. Now, when I use the word soul or soulish doubt, I'm talking about our mind, our will, and our emotions together. That's what I refer to as the soul. The Spirit is that part of us that the Holy Spirit comes, makes alive in Jesus Christ, that part of us that is the essence or core of our being, that part of us that that lives on, that part of us um, where eternal life is stored, if you will. That's our, our spirit. Our soul, then, is our mind, our will, and our emotions. And then our body is our, our external bits here. Our external bits, okay? So when I'm talking about soulish doubt, I'm not talking about spiritual doubt. I'm talking about doubt that results from the overextension of our mind, our will, or our emotions. In other words, let me give you a definition. Soulish doubt is the feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction that results when we depend too much on our mind, will, and emotions in evaluating, discerning, or judging spiritual or relational matters. I'll say it again. Soulish doubt is the feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction that results when we depend too much on our mind, will, and emotions in evaluating, discerning, or judging spiritual or relational matters. You know, our mind, our will, and our emotions, or our soul, is good. It's a gift from God. But our mind, will, and emotions have been corrupted by the power of sin. And now that we're made alive in Jesus Christ, God has taken us through the process of redeeming our soul, if you will, redeeming our mind, our will, and emotions, or sanctifying our mind, will, and emotions. And that's a process that we're going through. But while we're in that process, we can depend too much on our mind, will, and our emotions so that our mind, our will, our emotions become the tool that we use to evaluate the world around us as opposed to the Word of God. In fact, the the Greek word that's translated here is doubt, and it's translated, it's the same word in the Mark passage and the James passage, is the Greek word diakrino. And diakrino normally is translated as judge, to judge something. And it's not a bad word, it's a good word. We're told to judge between right and wrong. We judge between right and wrong. That's what we all are supposed to do every single day. We have to judge or discern what is right and what is wrong and hopefully choose the right and reject the wrong. And that that word is diacrino here. But in the case of James and in the case of Jesus there in Mark, the, the verb diacrino is in a slightly different form. It's called the middle voice. Now, you don't have to remember all of this, but the middle voice 
is when you do something with reference to yourself. You do something with reference to yourself. So in this case, it means that you judge using your own mind, will, or emotions as the standard of judgment. You follow that? You judge using your own mind, will, or emotions as the standard of judgment. Let me give you a couple of of examples here. Say uh, that my wife was here, my wife Karen, I love her, we've been married almost 25 years, great marriage and everything like that, but uh, say that uh, after the service I'm standing up here talking with one of you and Karen was here and she was in the back talking with any number of the many attractive men that are here today. And, uh, And say that, you know, I'm standing here and I'm having this conversation, but I notice out of the corner of my eye that this real attractive guy is kind of moving closer to my wife. You know, very carefully in that, that kind of way. And he seems to be gazing a little too intently in her eyes. And he gets a little bit closer and she's not backing away. In fact, she's kind of real steady and quiet as, she, as he moves a little bit closer. Now, if I'm engaging here in soulish doubt... What's going to happen is I'm going to be looking at that and my mind is going to tell me there's something funny going on here. And then my emotions are going to start getting churned up. You know, what is it? Is this guy trying to make a move on my wife? What is going on here? You know, I'm going to take him out. He might be bigger and tougher than me, but hey, this is my wife. And if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. That's what I'm going to do. And so I storm back there, you know, just ready to take this guy on. And all of a sudden, I notice that he is actually picking off a spider from my wife's shoulder. And she hates spiders, and that's why she was so terrified and so steady. What has just happened? What has happened is that I have judged that situation based on my own perspectives based on my own mind and my own emotions, and I have judged it incorrectly, and because of that, soulish doubt has come up in my mind. All of a sudden, I've doubted my relationship with my wife. I've doubted the integrity of the young man that was going close to her, when actually everything that was happening was completely innocent and completely righteous. That's soulish doubt. Another story is a a woman that used to travel quite a bit. And she'd go uh, fly in and out of a lot of different airports, especially in the United States. And uh, she really liked American-style cookies. I don't know if you've ever had them. You know, if not, talk to my wife. She could bake you some. You know, not tonight, but, uh, you know, some other time. And they're kind of big and they're soft, especially when they're hot. And, uh, and, and of course, they don't cause you to gain any weight whatsoever. You know, they're fat-free kind of things. And uh, she loved these things. And there was this favorite shop she had in one of the airports. And, and every time she flew through this airport, she considered it a treat. And she would go and buy herself three of these cookies. So she went, she bought herself three of these big cookies. They were nice and hot. Just come out of the oven, put them in a, put them in a bag, and walked over to, the, to her gate to, to get ready for the flight. But she had some time, so she sat down. Uh, and uh, she started reading her book. You know, she had a cup of coffee and she thought, you know, I'm just going to wait a moment. I don't want to dive into the cookies quite yet. I want to really want to savor this moment. And as she's reading along there, this guy sits over a couple of seats from her. There's a seat in between her and uh, he sits down for a little bit and she doesn't really notice him at all until all of a sudden she hears this bag rattling. 
And she looks over, and here's this guy reaching into a bag, pulling out a big American cookie. And this man, he has the nerve. He not only reaches into the bag, pulls out the cookie, but he eats the whole thing. Well, she's, she's seething. She's seething. Now, I know, you know, a South African would give him what for. But this wasn't a South African. She might have been English or something like that. And so she just kind of, she's seething here. She, she just doesn't know what to do. And so, so just to give him the message, she reaches over, puts her hand in the bag, ruffles it quite loudly, pulls out one of the cookies, and, you know, just kind of scarfs it down pretty quickly. Well, then the next thing she knows... The guy is putting his hand back into the bag. He pulls out one of the cookies. And then he has a nerve. He breaks it in half, gives her half, takes the other half, eats it, and walks off. I mean, she is just livid about this guy. What The nerve of this man. And just about this time, her flight is called. So she, uh, she has to get her boarding pass. So she reaches down into her purse. And right next to her boarding pass is a bag with three big American cookies. She was evaluating the situation based on her own mind and her own emotions and she got it wrong. She didn't have the whole picture. She didn't quite get it right. That is what soulish doubt is all about. It's when we over-apply our mind, our will, or our emotions to try to discern or evaluate relationships or spiritual matters. And I say relationships or spiritual matters especially because those tend to be the fuzzy areas of our lives. You know, as much as we want them to work in a certain way, they don't quite do, they don't quite work as we we think they should. So this soulish doubt will result from a number of things. First of all, it might come up from the over-application of our minds to the things of God. Now, I'm from the Reformed tradition, and I know this church is as well. And for those of you that don't know the Reformed tradition, it's what we refer to the groups, the the spiritual groups that came out of John Calvin and Luther's Reformation of the 1500s, and we call that the Reformed tradition. And uh, the Dutch Reformed Church is part of the Reformed tradition. Presbyterianism, which I came out of in the States, is part of the Reformed tradition. Uh, Congregationalism, uh, which City Temple is part of, is part of the Reformed tradition. And in the Reformed tradition, we have a tendency to really apply our minds to the things of God. And that's really good. I'm not against that. Uh, I think God did give us our intellects. The problem is that many people in the Reformed tradition can over-apply their minds to the things of God. Let me illustrate from John Calvin. Now, I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe that they're there just like the Bible says that they are. Uh, and I believe that because of the Bible, not based on all my own experience, although I do have some experience in that area. John Calvin did not believe in the present-day gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the reason he did not believe in the present-day gifts of the Holy Spirit was not due to a study of the Bible. It was due to his observations. In fact, he said, you know, in, we do not see the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating like they did in the New Testament. Therefore, the gifts of the Holy Spirit must not be for today. That was his argument in a nutshell. That argument is wrong. 
It's just wrong. It's an argument that comes out of soulish doubt. What he was doing was using his mind and his perspectives to evaluate what could be true and what could not be true in the Bible, not the other way around. You know, the other way around would say, you know, we don't see the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the same way that we saw in the lives of the apostles, for instance. Why not? It's in the Bible. And to begin to ask those questions and wrestle with that with the Scripture. And so we can over-apply our minds to the things of God and soulish doubt can come up with that. And by the way, God will often offend our minds in order to expose our hearts. He will often offend our minds in order to expose what we really believe. He might do that by having somebody that we normally wouldn't think of as a nice person all of a sudden become a Christian. Or he might do that by asking us to forgive somebody who's hurt us. And we say, well, I don't want to forgive. I want revenge, you know. But uh, whenever God, you know, offends our minds, he's doing that to expose our hearts. And he will often do that. And he will especially do that to those of us who come from the Reformed tradition. So we need to be careful of that. Uh, Soulish doubt will also result from depending on our own judgment or discernment. Just like the gal with the cookies. You know, she was depending on her own judgment, what she was discerning, and she assumed, as we all do, by the way, that what she thought she was seeing was actually what she was seeing. And every single one of us has that tendency. We believe that what we think we see or what we are perceiving is right. That's a normal human tendency, but it's often very, very wrong. It's often very, very wrong. So we can depend on our own judgment, our discernment. Soulish doubt can result from the quest for certainty, especially regarding spiritual matters. Do you know there's no such thing as certainty? Someone once said, well, the only things that are certain are death and taxes. But let me tell you, Elijah and Enoch proved that that's not true. Neither of them died. They were both taken up. There's no such thing as certainty. We say, well, you know, we've got to be certain that there's God. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people who question the existence of God. You know, I am convinced of God's existence. I am convinced of the truth of the gospel. And I place my faith in that. But there's no such thing as certainty. And if we want certainty, which we all do, Oh God, I need to know your will for my life. You're not going to get that. Although I can tell you God's will for your life. I know God's will for every single person here. You want to know what it is? This is a side note. It's a rabbit trail is what we call It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's will for your life. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, there's no such thing as certainty. You will not come up with certainty. Well, God, I want to know if the person I'm marrying is the person I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with. Well, get married to that person. And as soon as you marry that person, I'm certain that that's God's will for your life to spend the rest of your life with that person. Because you know, God wants us to stay. You following me here? And if we want this certainty, oftentimes it will end up in soulish doubt. You know, you'll always have questions about, say you you decide to marry somebody. From time to time, there will be questions that come up into your mind. Especially the women, I've seen this. You know, the guy seems so good until, you know, he has smelly feet and burps and other kinds of noises and sounds and stuff. And you think, oh God, what did you do? 
We all wrestle with that. You know, but there's no such thing as that certainty. We stay in, in it. And if we want the certainty, we'll, it will lead to soulish doubt. Another thing is focusing on wrong things. You know, if we focus on wrong things, especially negative circumstances, it can lead to soulish doubt. Let me give you another example. Uh, on the news. Now, if you go home and you watch BBC News, undoubtedly somebody's going to be dead There's going to be some tragedy hit somewhere. Maybe there's another earthquake that we haven't quite felt yet. There's a storm somewhere. Uh, Maybe there's another war or a rumor of a war breaking out somewhere around the world. Now you have a choice at that moment. Many people choose the path of soulish doubt. They say, oh, how can there be a good God when all this bad stuff is happening in the world? How can there be a good God if there's famine? How can there be a good God if there's wars and rumors of wars? How can there be a good God if there's an earthquake happening somewhere? And when you ask those kinds of questions, they lead to soulish doubt. But you know, for me, what I do, that actually leads me to faith. Because I look at this situation, I say, well, wait. I don't understand why God allows these things to happen. But Jesus told me it was going to happen. Jesus said there were going to be wars. Jesus said that there were going to be earthquakes. Jesus said that there were going to be famines. And there were going to be signs of the end of the age when He was getting ready to return. And so for me, I see these things. I don't know why they happen, but it makes actually makes me more confident in my relationship with God because it's what Jesus told me was going to happen. Now the difference is that I choose to focus on what Jesus says. I choose to focus on the Word of God and allow that to uh, color my judgment or discernment of what's happening around me. I don't allow my own perspectives to color that judgment or discernment. And if we allow our own perspectives to do that, it will lead to soulish doubt. If we desire our lives to be easy, tidy, orderly, or controlled, it will lead to soulish doubt. Because there's nothing easy about life, especially after you become a Christian. Sometimes it gets much more difficult. If you allow yourself to be dominated by your mind or your emotions, that will lead to soulish doubt. Oh God, how can you let me feel so bad? We begin to question God. Trying to figure life out. Let me tell you, when I was a teenager, I thought I could figure life out. But now that I'm slightly older than a teenager... I realize I can't even begin to figure it out. All I have to do is grab on to God and try to resist this soulish doubt, try to eliminate this from my life. You know, and the problem is with soulish doubt, it has a disastrous impact on us as Christians. It, first of all, makes our prayers and our declarations ineffective. You know, Jesus said, hey, you could say to this mountain, be moved into the heart of the sea, and if you do it without doubt, without this soulish doubt, it will happen. James says, now if you pray, you can pray for wisdom, but you need to do it without doubting because the one who does it with doubting is not going to get any answer from the Lord. And we have to deal with this soulish doubt, otherwise it will undermine our prayer lives and make those completely ineffective. It also makes us double-minded and unstable, as James says. That means that it makes it difficult for us to live for Jesus on a day-to-day basis. Because if you're wondering, okay, is Jesus really true? Well, is the Bible really true? Well, my perspective doesn't match up with Jesus' perspective. and Maybe I should trust my own perspective. If you're thinking these kinds of things, 
you're not going to be following Jesus. You're going to spend so much time navel-gazing, as we say in the States, that, uh, that you won't accomplish anything for God. It makes you double-minded and unstable. It will weaken your faith. It weakens your faith. It weakens your confidence in who God is. That God is a good God. That God is a gracious God. That God really loves you. And consequently then, it leads to a break between our beliefs and our actions. So that we say we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But at the same time, we are just as content to allow our co-workers to go to hell. Because we won't share the, faith, our go- the, the gospel with our co-workers. That's a break between our beliefs and our actions. We say, well, I believe that God heals. But we never pray. We never ask God to heal. Well, I believe that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. But we have this attitude like, God, just step out of the way. I can handle my own life. I can do it myself. That all comes out of soulish doubt. It breaks down the relationship between our beliefs and our actions. And consequently then, it undermines our relationship with God. Because what we begin to do is to think wrong thoughts about God. To think false thoughts about God. Oh, God really doesn't love me. Uh, otherwise, He wouldn't let me feel this way. Oh, God, God really doesn't you know, care about what happens in my life. Or, oh, God, maybe He's not really as good as I think He is. Or maybe He's not really capable of bringing this out to a positive revolu- uh, resolution. Uh, any number of things. We start to question who God is. We start to question uh, God's character and God's power. And then in the end, what it does, it completely undermines and weakens our impact in the world with the kingdom of God. Because we can accomplish nothing as long as we are prisoners to this soulish doubt. We really have to get rid of it in our lives. We really have to deal with it in our lives. Now fortunately, God tells us to deal mercifully with those who doubt. And we do need to deal mercifully with each other when we're wrestling with this doubt. When we're struggling with this doubt. But we need to deal with it. So how do we do this? You know, How do we overcome this soulish doubt? A few things I'd suggest. First of all, we have to remember the messiness of life, even the messiness of our relationship with God. A lot of times we want our relationship with God to be nice and tidy. I do this and God does this. But we need to remember that God is a person. And persons have the potential of acting in very crazy ways especially if their name happens to be God. And if you question that, just look at the Old Testament. You know, look at some of the crazy things. Here's Joseph getting these dreams from God and then spending 14 years in jail and a number of years waiting to see this, the fulfillment come about. Now, this look at Abraham. Oh, by the way, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. Yeah, right, I'm 80 years old. What are you talking about? Who are you joking with? God works in some pretty crazy ways. Oh, Abraham, by the way, you know that kid that I gave you? Kind of miraculous. Well, take him and kill him, would you? That's crazy. God is wild and unpredictable. And we cannot control God. We have to remember the messiness of life and the messiness of our relationship with God. And oftentimes, you know, we tend to approach God in a way that we think we can make God do what we want Him to. 
Uh, imagine me again in my relationship with my wife. And imagine my wife loves pepperoni pizza. And she would do almost anything for pepperoni pizza. So one day I come to her and I say, Honey, here's a pepperoni pizza that I baked by hand right out of the box. And I did this just for you because I love you so much. And she says, Oh, thank you, Rod. It's so great. And she's chowing down on the pepperoni pizza. And after a few minutes I say, Oh, Dear, by the way, would you bake me a cake? She's a good baker, by the way. Now, what have I just done? You know what I've done? I've treated my wife like a prostitute. I've said, honey, I am paying you with a pepperoni pizza so that you will grant me your favors, in this case of baking me a cake. And you know, a lot of times we treat God the same way. We think that we can just do A, B, or C, and that God must do X, Y, or Z. And that doesn't work that way. And it's offensive. It's offensive. Better to remember the messiness of life and the messiness of relationships. And remember, it's never going to be neat and tidy. And consequently, that means that we need to embrace mystery and ambiguity. You know, one of the things that makes my wife appealing after 25 years almost is the mystery. You know, I haven't been able to figure her out. I've got a few things down, like A, she likes mushrooms. I got that. Uh, B, she doesn't like it when I put dirty dishes on the countertop instead of the dishwasher. You know, I, I figure some of those things out, although I'm still not very good at, at, at either of them. But, you know, I've got some things figured out, but, boy, I can't figure her out. And that's part of the allure. You'll never figure out God. You'll never figure out people. It doesn't work that way. So we need to embrace the mystery and ambiguity of life. There are some things that for the moment just will never make sense. They often make sense in retrospect when we look back at it, but in the moment we're in, they don't make sense. And so rather than wrestle with them and kick them away, we need to learn how to embrace that ambiguity, embrace that mystery, and trust in God who is in control, who will bring us through whatever that is. The third thing that we need to do is find mind-blowing testimonies of God's power and work. That's one of the things I loved about having Angus Buckin up here and seeing him. And the whole story around Faith Like Potatoes. I mean, it's just such a great story. And I love to think about it and I love to dwell on it because it shows us what God can do. It shows us what God is capable of, the God's great power. And, uh, and I have a number of other things that I subscribe to that share testimonies of what God is doing around the world to stretch my mind. I want my mind blown by resurrections from the dead, by healings, by uh, thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus, by miracles of God happening uh, in the most unlikely of places, by people who are sharing food with people to see that food miraculously multiplied on the lorry before it's even handed out. Those kinds of things are happening all the time around the world and we need to fill our minds with these things to help us to overcome some of this soulish doubt. Then we need to focus on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who, as the writer to the Hebrew says, is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus needs to be our focus. Jesus who is crucified. Jesus who is raised from the dead. Jesus who healed the blind. Jesus who raised the dead. Jesus who cast out demons. Jesus who fed the 5,000. To keep our eyes fixed on this man. Because in this man is our hope. And everything that Jesus did, we can do and even more. 
You say, Rod, that's an outlandish thing. Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. Check out John chapter, um, I forget now, chapter 14. (laughs) I tell you the truth, if you have faith in me, you will do the things that I've been doing, Jesus said. And even greater things will you do because I've gone to the Father. That's the scripture. That's what Jesus said. We got to focus on Jesus. And finally, we need to trust God in his word. And that is a choice that you make every single day. It's not something you did when you became a Christian. It's a choice you do daily. We need to trust God and His Word, not our mind, our will, or our emotions, as the ultimate arbiter. That means if I'm feeling like a no-good, miserable sinner, but God says in His Word that I'm a saint, you know, I'm going to trust God's Word that I'm a saint, not what I'm feeling. That means if I'm feeling ugly and worthless... But God says that I've been created in His image and I have value and I'm loved. Then I'm going to choose to trust God and not what I'm feeling. That means if I see the the news stories and it feels like everything is a mess and I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know why there's so much suffering and things in the world. It means that I'm going to choose to trust God and His Word. That this is not the way he wants it to be. And that actually Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to choose to trust God and his word. Not my mind, will, and emotions. And if I do so, I know that I will overcome this soulish doubt. And we can do that not only for ourselves, but we need to do these things for each other. And it can have a powerful, powerful effect. I'll close with a story. A few years ago. A woman came to me that had been a part of City Temple for a number of years, but she'd gone off to theological college, actually a rather liberal theological college. And she came to me and she said, you know, Rod, I'm just meeting with you out of courtesy because you're the new minister here at City Temple. And since I've been connected with City Temple, I think I should do that. But I just wanted to tell you, uh, I, I don't really believe in God anymore. And I don't believe that Jesus was God, certainly. And I don't really believe in the bodily resurrection. That's kind of strange. And this whole substitutionary atonement bit, uh, I've kind of rejected that, you know. But I just want to let you know these things. Now, at that moment, I had two choices in the way that I would respond. Either A, I could have said, well, thank you, sister. Uh, Have fun going to hell. Or I could have nodded. And responded to her in gentleness and love. And deal mercifully with those who are doubting. Just like Jude 22 says. I chose to do the second one by the way. Otherwise there wouldn't be much more story to tell on this one. And over the course of the next few months. uh, Even the next year. From time to time she would call me to have coffee. She wanted to meet on, on a fairly regular basis. And I did. And I listened to her. And I consistently pointed her back to Jesus. I shared my own beliefs. I shared the Bible uh, just in in pretty much the tone that I'm talking to you right now. Just very uh, non-threatening, very merciful, very gentle. And it took just over a year. But she came to the place and one day she came to me and said, You know, Rod, I do believe that Jesus is God again. I do believe that he rose from the dead and he died on the cross for me. I do believe my sins are forgiven and that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Soulish doubt. That's what she was dealing with because of a theological college. 
Soulless doubt can be overcome. And now she's serving Jesus in another part of the world, but she's serving Jesus faithfully. And that can happen in your life as well. We have to overcome this soulish doubt so that we can have the impact for the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ died for us to have so that we can live for the glory of Jesus every single day. It is possible. Trust in God. Trust in God. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Father, that anybody that's struggling with soulish doubt here today, Lord, that you would help them to fix their eyes on Jesus. That they would see Jesus in his glory. That they would see Jesus in his beauty. And that, Lord, you would help us all to learn to trust you and your word, not our mind, our will, and our emotions. I thank you for our mind, will, and emotions. I thank you for our souls. And that they are a good gift from you. But we cannot fully trust them as we can you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn that balance, to get it right, and to trust you and your word above all things. And Lord, I pray that you'd send your people out from this place in the power of your Spirit, filled with your Holy Spirit, to do great things for God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.